Welcome. This is Lawyer Up. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Derora. I'm John Gonzalez, and we're coming from beautiful Columbus, Ohio, on a beautiful fall day. Um, today, we are with State Representative Allison Russo. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Allison, um, we're going to talk today about a couple of bills you have in the Ohio um, House of Representatives, but before doing so, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe a little bit about your family, and then what district you represent in Ohio? Sure. So I am the representative for the 24th House District. So that is here in Franklin County. We are the uh, western suburbs primarily of Franklin County. So I have a little bit of North Clintonville, all of Upper Arlington, most of Hilliard, and then some of our southwestern townships. Uh, so everything west of Grove City and Hilliard. I do not have Dublin. That's a different district. So it's a very large geographic district uh, within Franklin County, uh, but mostly suburban district, even though I do have portions of Columbus and some rural areas as well. I have been in this office uh, since 2018. I was elected in 2018, sworn in on January of 2019. So this is my first term. Um, and uh, it was the first time that I ran for elected office, and, uh, you know, I call it the most fascinating job I've ever had. It's uh, been an honor to serve this district. Um, also, I spent 20 years as a health policy advisor. I actually still do that when I'm not legislating, and I am the mom to three kids who range in age from four to 13, so uh, we stay busy at home as well. I'm married to my husband, Brian. We will celebrate our 20th anniversary at the end of November. For those listeners that may be more interested in how the legislature works in Ohio, if I understand right, there are 99 seats in the Ohio House, which is separate from the Ohio Senate, and the majority of those seats are held by Republicans. Is that right? That's correct. So the Ohio General Assembly is composed much like Congress in Washington, 99 representatives in the chamber of the house and 33 in the chamber of the senate for the last decade under the new districts that we have or in the current districts that we have in the state the republicans have held uh, mostly during this time a super majority uh, we also this is uh, not a secret and has been debated uh, on the national scene and in the courts uh, this particular the districts that we are under currently are the most gerrymandered legislative districts in Ohio's history and so you are in the minority you're a democrat correct Correct. And how does that affect getting bills passed? Does it make it much more difficult? Yeah, so certainly being in the super minority uh, makes it more challenging to legislate in a bipartisan way, although it, it does certainly happen. And there are many good examples of that that have happened even in this General Assembly um, and, you know, I, there are always issues that we can come to agreement on. Um, most of the bills that we pass uh, on very non-controversial topics are passed with bipartisan support. The issue becomes in the really difficult topics and the most complex issues, and, and I would argue probably some of the most important issues that the state faces 
that is where we see um, often, you know, lack of compromise and agreement. And I think that that is the real disservice of both gerrymandered legislative districts as well as super majorities, regardless of what party is in charge. I think any time that we have a super majority that's built on the foundation of gerrymandered districts, you really take away the voice of voters. Um, I point out that Ohio, uh, the Democratic legislators, we actually got close to 49% of the popular vote in 2018, but we hold only 38 out of 99 seats in the House of Representatives. So that just shows you how unbalanced um, our representation really is. I think I think I heard that's okay. I think I heard the phrase, maybe from you, probably from others, that we have a situation where representatives are actually picking their voters as opposed to voters picking out their representatives. Yes, and that's absolutely correct. And that is the situation that we're facing currently in the state of Ohio. Going into 2021, we have an opportunity to redistrict in the state, and we passed a number of reforms, uh, both in 2015 and 2018 to make that system better, but it's still not perfect. At the end of the day, legislators draw those uh, districts and everyone that gets elected and will be in office uh, this election cycle in 2020 will be in the seats in 2021, draw drawing the new legislative districts that will go into effect in 2022. We're hoping there is improvement uh, but, you know, there will certainly be gaming of even the new laws that we have. One other question on just the general process, then. Um, all of the uh, House of Representatives, all of the 99 seats are up for re-election every two years, correct? That's correct. So in the House of Representatives, we serve in two-year terms, which means that we are running for election every two years, and every seat is up for re-election every election cycle. In the Senate, those terms are four-year terms. Um, and we are also in the state of Ohio under term limits. Uh, on the House side, you serve four. You can serve four terms or eight years total. On the Senate side, you can serve two terms or eight years total. Now, we do have individuals who switch back and forth between the chambers because that is not prohibited. Uh, so you have many legislators who have been there since before t term limits were implemented and have been able to just work the timing so they've just gone back and forth between chambers. So we want to encourage all our listeners to get out and vote uh, this time around because that's, uh, at least in my opinion, where the real change can be made. Well, let's talk about um, uh, First Energy and the problems that... Um, were caused uh, with dark money in uh, politics and what your uh, personal response has been to that, if we can. Sure. So um, you are referring to what's known as House Bill 6 or the nuclear energy bailout. Specifically, that bill was crafted to support one company here in the state of Ohio. Um, what's uh, the company known as First Energy, although they have gone through bankruptcy proceedings and changed their names. Um, or their name. Uh, but yeah, so House Bill 6 was passed, um, or so we started to see House Bill 6, it was introduced towards the beginning of this General Assembly, so in early 2019. Uh, it was pretty clear from the beginning uh, that this was a bill that was being pushed. 
heavily by that individual company, by then former speaker um, householder. Um, there were hours of testimony and committee. Overwhelmingly, people were opposed to this um, legislation because, frankly, it was just bad policy. And uh, it also came around the same time as our budget, um, the budget that we passed at the beginning of the General Assembly generally um, goes through around the June timeframe in the first year of the General Assembly. So this would have been June of 2019. Uh, as you will recall, the state budget was delayed, even though Republicans hold control of the House, the Senate, and the governors. The budget uh, negotiations were delayed. I believe we went, I can't remember if it was 17 or 18 days past uh, the constitutional deadline that we have to pass the budget. What we now know is a lot of the budget negotiations were wrapped around also ramming House Bill 6 through, and that was part of the negotiations. So House Bill 6 uh, was passed with a lot of drama in both the House and the Senate, actually came back for a conference and uh, passed by, I think only two votes got uh, concurrence uh, when it was passed. And it became immediately clear, certainly throughout those hearings, but also even after, that many of the arguments that were made by First Energy and that this was about saving jobs, uh, this was about preventing those nuclear power plants from closing, was really about um, increasing the value of the company uh, so that they could do um, both to help them through their bankruptcy proceedings as well as stock buybacks that happened. Uh, what we now know from uh, both the indictment uh, and the arrest of former House Speaker Larry Householder is that uh, also involved were approximately $61 million in uh, bribery and racketeering. Um, so this bill is based in corruption, plain and simple. In my standing, I, I did not vote for House Bill 6. Uh, my standing is that this bill should be repealed as immediately as possible. Allison, I get the sense that while there was outcry after the indictment of Householder and this, this sense of we need to repeal it, holy cow, doesn't look like it's going to happen. It seems as if all kinds of excuses are being made as to why it shouldn't be repealed. Can you respond to that? Yeah, you know, that is the most perplexing part of this. It is very clear from the indictment that, again, that this was corruption, plain and simple. Um, we now have some legislators in the General Assembly, and I can speak mostly to the House side, who are essentially, you know, trying to delay this process as much as possible and are still arguing that this bill should stand, even though uh, it is wrapped up in this corruption. And that's usually problematic. Uh, number one, um, you know, I didn't even mention the whole process of trying to get the repeal on the ballot and, and what happened there. Uh, but number two, you know, 
80%, up to 80% of uh, voters, and we know this from polling, support immediate repeal of this legislation. Because at the end of the day, this is about a corporate bailout that gets paid for by taxpayer money. Um, and so what we've seen is the current speaker, uh, Bob Kopp, has now created a special subcommittee to hear the various repeal bills that have been introduced by both Republicans and Democrats. And uh, essentially what we're seeing in some of these hearings is this is just delaying this process as long as possible. Uh, we have our theories as to why that may be happening. Um, number one, uh, perhaps to protect some vulnerable members who are up for reelection. Uh, number two, I mean, we've heard directly from one particular representative who's been very vocally supportive and may in fact be the original mastermind behind this legislation, that there is this thought that much like gun reform uh, and the calls for gun reform after Dayton, that voters will just simply forget about this if it gets dragged out long enough. Um, I think that is just a slap in the face to voters and to Ohio taxpayers um, and, you know, again, I always go back to this is just a symptom of a bigger issue. And to me, this is what gerrymandering does. It creates this unchecked power. And also, I think our campaign finance laws that allowed this type of corruption, and this is not the first time that this has happened in the General Assembly, but allows this type of corruption to fester and to continue to be an issue um, general Assembly after General Assembly. I got two hard questions for you. Sure. If you, had to make a, if you had to make a wager, would you wager that HS, HB6 will be repealed this year? Second one, if it doesn't get repealed this year, would you make a wager that it's going to be repealed in the next session? Well, that's a great question, and that's a, a bet I would be very hesitant to take. If I had to wager whether or not it's going to be repealed, this General Assembly, at the moment, just given, I think, the lack of courage that we're seeing come, coming from the Republican caucus leadership, uh, I would say probably not. There's definitely uh, some division in their caucus. Uh, on this issue, and uh, they have put it under, you know, the guise of we need to not just repeal but replace. Uh, this is a very familiar argument that we've we've heard before: uh, the Affordable Care Act, <laughs> repeal and replace, and there was never really a replacement plan. Um, so, I don't think that it's going to happen in this General Assembly. Um, you know, the next General Assembly, who knows? But uh, again, you know, this is such a slap in the face to Ohio's taxpayers and voters and really shows how corrupt this system has become. Uh, and this, to me, again, it's just a symptom of much larger issues around gerrymandering and campaign finance. We go back to the repeal bills that you talked about uh, having been introduced both by Democrats and Republicans. Uh, it seems to me that a repeal bill would be very brief and just repeal HB6. But uh, I, my guess is there are other things in these bills that make them different from one another. Do you have your own bill or have you supported a particular bill? And can you tell us about the differences with the repeal bills? 
yeah, so that's a good question. And uh, there are um, at least two primary repeal efforts uh, that are happening now. I support a clean repeal. Uh, there is some argument, uh, and, I, and I think these are, you know, legitimate points to be made, that there were a couple of things that were added into House Bill 6 uh, as part of the negotiation process as it was going through that, you know, have some merit and are policies that need to be uh, debated. And I'm not saying that they're not bad policies. Um, the, the two that immediately come to mind are... Um, uh, behind the net metering, um, that is a piece of legislation that, that folks have been working on uh, for a while, as well as uh, there was some funding uh, and some incentives for uh, some solar um, energy efforts. Uh, but again, you know, those two issues could be their own standalone piece of legislation. If those have merit, they absolutely should be their own standalone pieces of legislation. Let's debate them. Uh, and if we all agree, you know, certainly pass them and get them through. The problem is they are so wrapped up in this corrupt bill, so muddied by this corruption, that I don't think with a straight face we can start picking apart pieces of House Bill 6 that need to stay. Um, it needs to be cleanly fully repealed. We're also running up against a time um, deadline here. Uh, you know, as part of the legislative process, most folks don't realize that when a bill is passed by both chambers, the House and the Senate, and it's signed by the governor, it does not actually go into effect until 90 days after, unless it's passed as an emergency measure. So what that means is if we want this bill to not go into effect by January 1st, remember the rates that get tacked on to your electric bills go into effect in January. This bill has to be fully repealed and signed by the governor by October 1st. So essentially, the Republicans are running out the clock here. And, um, you know, again, I think that goes back to, you know, our concerns about referring this to a subcommittee, drawing out these hearings, having this debate about whether or not you should do a clean repeal versus a repeal and replace when we haven't even seen a replacement plan. It needs to be fully repealed, period. That's just so disheartening. You know, I'm struck by Governor DeWine's comments Initially, I think he was not in favor of repealing. And then he said, wait a minute, on second thought, it's corrupt. We've got to repeal it. And here we are a couple months later, nowhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would encourage folks not only to read the indictment, uh, which is, you know, just it reads like a movie script. It's it's really quite unbelievable, just the brazenness of, of what happened. But also what's been happening in these hearings and the subcommittee, some of the testimony, particularly yesterday's testimony, it's just remarkable. And how anyone with a straight face can say that this bill does not need to be repealed or that it should be extended any longer um, it, it would be, sh it's shocking when you both read the indictment and I think watch some of the testimony that has come out so far. So I would encourage, uh, you know, this is uh, one of the great things about Ohio is our committee and legislative process is quite transparent. 
Uh, you can watch those on the Ohio channel, all of the committee hearings, which, by the way, was something that Democrats were able to negotiate at the beginning of this General Assembly to have all of those available. Um, and I really encourage folks to do that. Allison, uh, anybody's looking at the sister legislation where other energy companies got legislation in, to, um, in exchange for their support about House Bill 6. And is there any effort to go back and look at some of the, the sis, I call it sister legislation to see if that needs to be addressed or repealed? Well, that's a good question. And I'm not sure that I can fully comment on that at this point. Uh, but I think that that's a, a very good question. And certainly there were lots of uh, negotiations that happened in the budget in House Bill 6, as well as some follow-on legislation um, even things that have been passed recently in the summer where we've seen some energy companies, you know, get some uh, pretty uh, nice projects. And um, so, you know, I, I can't say one way or the other, but I, I think that's an interesting question that you raise. So the legislative process is, is stalled being held up, but I was uh, uh, raised with you today an article in the Columbus Dispatch that A.G. Yost is trying to go about it a different way where he is uh, asking a court to block the fees that are going to be charged in January. One, were you aware of that effort and what do you think about that effort by uh, the Republican Attorney General? Well, I think that it is interesting, and I don't know the full details of it because I haven't had a chance to read the article yet, but heard a little bit of discussion yesterday while we were in session. Um, I think it's an interesting approach by the Attorney General. Remember, this is the same Attorney General uh, when the ballot initiative effort was ongoing, actually blocked the, the language um, a couple of times and, and delayed that process. So I'll be frank that I'm immediately suspect and it feels a little bit like smoke and mirrors. I mean, simply to block the fees instead of outright repealing the legislation and some of the other things that came with it in the legislation, this was not just about fees, um, really, again, seems to be one other effort to take the, the burden off of the shoulders of elected representatives and legislators who voted for this legislation and should be held responsible for repealing the legislation. Allison, let's change the direction of the conversation a little bit. You've made some strides to address this corruption problem. What have you done? So in order, you know, again, I think that the root cause of what we've seen in House Bill 6 and before it, what we saw with CoinGate, what we've seen with the ECOT, what we've seen with payday lending. I mean, this is a long history of uh, pay to play politics here in the state of Ohio uh, and corruption really the root of it is our campaign financing. And uh, we have a system, and part of this goes back to the Citizens United decision that happened at the Supreme Court uh, that allowed these corporate entities to have a voice in the political process. So we can't go back and change that. But there are things that we can do at the state level legislatively to increase the transparency of the money that is going into these 501c4s that get established. Because right now in the state of Ohio, uh, companies, corporations, groups can create these 
501c4s. Um, so something like if you read the indictment, Generation Noun, for example. And those entities do not have to report their donors. So there's no transparency in that process. And so what the anti uh, Corruption Act does, which is the bill that I've introduced with Representative Bride Sweeney, who is up in the Cuyahoga County area. And this is legislation, by the way, that is built on legislation that was previously introduced by Kathleen Clyde when she was a state representative and was very active in this space. Um, it requires more transparency uh, in that reporting. It puts those 501c4s on equal uh, footing with other um, political contributing entities. So when unions, for example, when they have um, uh, campaign funds or PAC or other PACs um, and they have to go through and report all of their donors, it puts those 501c4s on equal footing um, so that they also have to report that. So it closes those secret money loopholes, which again, you know, we've seen come up time and time again um, in these corruption cases. So how do your Republican colleagues view this bill? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. So the Republicans uh, have also introduced their own versions of this. Um, so probably the most notable one, actually we have a, a Democrat on that bill as well, um, it is similar in language uh, and similar, I think, in what it's trying to achieve, you know, but it's all in the, the devil is always in the details. And it's in how tight you define what are political contributions and political activities. And I would say uh, the other pieces of legislation that we've seen um, still leave a lot of openings for interpretation of what that means because those activities are not clearly defined. So I think, you know, when you, I, I think there is an interest on both sides of the aisle to deal with this issue. But, you know, again, the question is following through and not just virtue, virtue signaling on this topic. Uh, it takes more than just dropping a piece of legislation and throwing your name on it and saying, hey, I'm against uh, corruption and for campaign finance reform. I mean, to me, the proof is in the pudding. Then give it committee hearings. Let it go through the process. Bring it to the floor for a vote if you are serious about addressing this. And so far, we have not seen that at all. Well, when you look at the 501c4s, I mean, it, that the, the concept of it to uh, hide donor information uh, is used by historically Democratic institutions as well as Republican. And it reminds me, Jack, of kind of like lawyer advertising. If the court decided that we weren't allowed to do it, then we're all in the same, right? Right. We'll all be in the same boat. Right. And so if, if all of the donors mm -hmm. are now disclosed, it seems to me the money won't dry up. It'll still be there, but we're all playing by the same rules. And I, I think that that type of um, legislation is a good idea. Well, uh, I think that, and, and I think you raise a, a fair point, and I just want to be clear about this. Campaign finance reform and increasing transparency is not about, you know, uh, getting Democrats or Republicans and, and not allowing them to uh, do their political activities. Um, I mean, to me, you know, both parties 
in participating in this is a disservice to voters. You know, I, I want to be very clear about that because both parties are certainly um, have been guilty of taking advantage of that system in the state of Ohio. But you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that voters need to know and be very clear that if they are getting flyers about an issue, you know, whether it be from Generation Now about, you know, stopping the Chinese trying to take over our energy sources or, you know, some other effort, voters need to know for sure who is funding that. Is that being funded by a corporation? Is that being funded by donors with a specific interest? And right now there's zero transparency in that process. So, Allison, we talked to uh, Paul Beck, um, a professor over at OSU, about dark money, and he, he had an interesting comment about, about the legitimacy of some donors not wanting to be disclosed. He said, you take a company that may want to give money to Planned Parenthood, but is concerned that if that gets out, that some of their customers might not then want to, you know, uh, uh, be a part of that uh, uh, buying their products and that so it isn't necessarily all uh, nefarious when donors want to hide themselves from it and I we asked him Jack and I asked him well how do you go about protecting those types of donors and frankly he didn't know I don't know if that issue has come up with with you or with uh, in the well well yes it has in some discussions and you know I would counter back to that that the problem is, you know, we're always in a risk benefit uh, scenario here. And the problem is we have seen that the risk of nefarious activity is so high and has been so pervasive that to me, you know, we have to fix that. And, um, you know, sure, not all of the activity that happens with these 501c4s is nefarious, but so much of it is. And it has created uh, this opportunity for pay-to-play politics that we just cannot, I, I think, continue to risk that um, because it creates, at the end of the day, bad policy that the taxpayers of Ohio are then left holding the bag and, um, you know, to me, it's not worth that. Well, I, I guess what you're saying is you, no matter how good your efforts, you just can't solve every problem. It's a risk-benefit analysis. I get it. Hey, let's, let's switch now to the topic that's in the news every day, which is elections. Mm -hmm. And the gentleman who's in the news a lot, Frank LaRose. So if I were to ask you, how do you feel that Frank LaRose is doing handling all these ballot and voting issues, what would you say? You know, listen, I think that in some ways, you know, Secretary LaRose, um, I appreciate that he has fought back against this narrative that we've seen coming from the national level, from President Trump, that absentee voting is somehow um, not secure and uh, is tainted in some way. As, as you both know, we have been doing absentee voting, which is the same as mail voting, uh, for years in the state of Ohio without issue, without fraud. Um, we have a lot of faith in that process. So I appreciate uh, him defending that. 
where he has been extremely disappointing to me is in some of the things that he advocated for both when he ran for election in the 2018 for Secretary of State, as well as things he's even said in front of state and local government committee, which I sit on and, and most of the voting legislation comes through that committee. Um, he has countered with his actions in the last month or so. Um, so specifically, uh, talking about, um, you know, he said both in the election, he's also said in committee hearings that he fully supports online absentee voting, the online absentee voting application process, because right now the process is you can go online, you have to download the form, you have to print it out, you have to send it in with a stamp. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's very confusing. And we saw in the primary um, that a lot of people, you know, we lost a lot of voters in that process because it's confusing. Uh, they don't have a stamp. They don't have a printer, you know, for a number of reasons. Um, then when push came to shove and he was given an opportunity, which he said, you know, it would only take not very long to execute that because we essentially have the platform ready to do that. Um, he dragged out any decision on it and then reverse course. Uh, we've seen, you know, him this issue about postage paid for ballots. Uh, he supported that in the primary election. Um, he's expressed support of that previously. Um, the CARES Act money that he was given, uh, the CARES Act language um, and how it can be used to support the election process is, is pretty clear that it allows postage for ballots. Um, and he, you know, claims that he had to have authority to pay that postage, which absolutely was not true. Uh, did a little bit of smoke and mirrors with some of the pots of money that he has access to as Secretary of State. Then this whole charade, he was going to go in front of the controlling board, basically dragged that whole process out, knowing full well what the controlling board was going to say, because again, it's made up uh, a majority of Republicans. They did some shifting of who was a member on that controlling board. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, said, no, you can't use the money to pay for postage. Um, you know, so those actions, his, his um, fight against multiple drop boxes. Right now, uh, there's only one drop box at the Board of Elections. There's nothing in law that says that you can only have one drop box. Uh, but he is claiming that he can't make that decision. And then he's, you know, when the court, the Franklin County Court of Appeal, uh, I'm sorry, Common Police Court judge said, there's nothing in state law that says that you can't do it. You absolutely can do it. He then appealed that decision. So I, my disappointment with Secretary LaRose has been, you know, I feel that the things he said and the, the full support of voting rights in this state, when push comes to shove and real action, you can take real action in your role as Secretary of State. He just has not followed through. One of those issues is this fight over ballot drop boxes, and I'm not sure I understand why that is a big problem. Can you, from both sides, say what is the issue that the Republicans may have with it, and what is the issue that voters should be concerned about there? Well, I, I think you've summed it up 
uh, quite nicely. I don't know what the big problem is. I, I think that that is something that, again, we see from both Democrats and Republicans support multiple uh, ballot drop boxes. We've even seen this in, in other states, in Republican-led states. Um, many times these many times these drop boxes are not only at the Board of Elections, but also at your local libraries, for example, or at your local municipal buildings. Um, and the point of multiple drop boxes is to make voting, uh, absentee voting or mail-in voting more accessible. And, you know, currently you have to drive to one location within the state. Um, and that is a burden for some voters. The argument, the counter argument uh, is a concern about safety and security, really security of the drop box. You know, although, um, you know, there are many examples of where we have Dropbox-like um, uh, things that are at multiple locations throughout the county. I mean, um, you know, so there are ways that we can certainly make sure, and it's important to make sure that our elections are secure and those Dropboxes are secure. Um, but the answer to me is not just simply having one at a location. So I, I think that it's just a, a silly argument, the whole thing. And to me, it's a very obvious fix and solution to making voting, absentee voting more accessible to individuals, making them feel confident that when they finish their absentee ballot, that it gets back to the Board of Elections. And, you know, it really, it just disenfranchises voters. Let me clarify something. You said voters have to drive to one location in the state. I'm pretty confident you I'm actually sorry. have one location within the county. Yes, absolutely. I meant one location within the county. So in Franklin County, that one location is the Board of Elections over on Morse Road. My apologies. Thank you for yeah. correcting me on that. No, that's <laughs> as if I never misspoke. One last question for you before we sign off. Um, I'm really big on gun safety. Any chances of us seeing any meaningful legislation that will help reduce gun violence? Well, Jack, that's a that's a great question, and I'm afraid I don't have a great answer for you. And I think the chances with the current makeup of our Ohio General Assembly are close to zero. Um, of having anything meaningful. And it is a real shame. And again, I go back to this issue of gerrymandering and what happens when you have politicians who pick their voters and not voters who pick their politicians. Um, you know, our elected leaders are no longer accountable to the public. And so I'll take the issue of expanded background checks. We know that close to 90% of Ohioans support expanded background checks. Republicans and Democrats, gun owners and non-gun owners. And we cannot even get that to get meaningful hearings in the General Assembly and to get it onto the floor for a vote. To me, that is outrageous. And that is disrespectful to our voters. And that is what happens when we have this very um, skewed system where your representatives are no longer working for the voters. And um, so it is, you know, the, the best fix to that is voting and to try to get uh, representatives in office 
who are going to be supportive of those issues um, and who are going to pledge to take meaningful action. And, and that's really the solution and fixing our districts. And I do hope with redistricting that some of this is corrected. Um, but, you know, this issue of gun safety is just one example of how flawed the system currently is. Allison, um, we appreciate you talking to us today. Um, your uh, candor is refreshing for a politician. I hope you don't lose that as you uh, will hopefully stay in office for your full um, term limited terms. Uh, I personally think balance is important in politics. Uh, we need D's and R's to solve the problems that, that our state uh, faces. And I, I want to thank you for uh, uh, what to me is your thorough understanding of the issues and your practical approach. I also would give a shout out to your husband, Brian. I was married to a state legislator for, uh, well, we've been married for 35 years, and I know how uh, difficult it can be to be supportive too of, of those efforts. So thank you so much for, for taking time for us today. Well, thank you both. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. I too want to thank you for talking with us. It's been a very good conversation. And like John, I applaud your efforts and your candor and the way you approach things. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode of Lawyer Up. And John, I'm, I'm still juggling the schedule, but I think we're going to be talking to a lawyer who's held, who has handled some very serious rape cases and the problems presented by statute that limit the damages that a rape victim can recover. So anyway, that should be up in the next few weeks. Until then, remember to lawyer up. You can uh, subscribe at our website, Lawyer Up Columbus, or on your favorite podcast app. See you in a few weeks. So long.